Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. We are continuing in our series today, Healed People. This week is actually our final week in our Healed People series. And I don't know about you, but I'm just grateful for what God has been speaking to us over the last several weeks throughout this series. I'm grateful for what He's doing. I've been hearing from so many of you either messaging in or calling and speaking to us about just what God's doing in your life, how He's speaking to your heart, how He's speaking to your mind and to your spirit. And He's just reaching in, I think, to some of those deep places. So I'm so thankful for what it means for us now as well as what it is going to mean for our church in the days and years to come. I really believe God is doing doing something special in us in this season. Amen. I want to get straight into the word this morning. You'll turn with me to the book of First Timothy starting in chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1. This, of course, is a letter from Paul to his young protege, Timothy, and he's writing him to encourage him, to strengthen him. And I just want to read you a short verse from First Timothy 1 and 5. It says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Put it in the chat. Tell somebody next to you, sincere faith. Heavenly Father, Spirit of the living God, we thank you for this moment right here, right now, this place that you have brought us to. We ask you for your word today to come alive to us. Let it not be letters on a page, but let it be living and active. Let it move in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits. Let us change because of what we hear today. I ask for your anointing. I ask for your spirit, God, that everything that is spoken comes from you, comes from heaven, has the ability to alter our lives, has the ability to alter our tomorrow and walk us into freedom, God. Everything that's just me, God, let it be left here. Let it be forgotten. Let it remain. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So we've been walking through this series, and I just want to take a final moment before we wrap up our Healed People series, and I want to remind you of just how we got here. We've been talking about a series called Healed People because we believe that God wants us walking and living in a place of health, that it's the plan of the enemy to divide you. It's the plan of the enemy to break you down. It's the plan of the enemy to wear you down with constant struggle, with constant turmoil, with constant breaches to the the freedom that God purchased for you. But we believe that Jesus came so that you could live in life and life more abundantly. And we're talking about your life here, your life now. What do we do while we are still in earth, still living inside of time and space? How do we experience the healing, the wholeness that God has intended for us? It's not his vision for you that you would live bound. It's not his vision for you that you would live broken. It's not his vision for you that you would walk around with scars and imprints in your life that are still 
open and ready and waiting for someone just to bump into them and send you off because you're so easily triggered. All of us have faced things in life that damaged us in some way, that imprinted us in some way, that impacted us in some way. The plan of the enemy is that those things in your life would grow, would take root, would begin to control you, manipulate you, bind you, and tie you back to that instance, to that moment, to that event, to that person in your life. The plan of God is that you would be untangled, that you would live your life in freedom with arms raised up, with eyes of victory, walking in saying, yes, I've been through a battle or two, but I am living healed. I am living whole. And so we've been on this journey of this series called Healed People. The people of God would be healed people. And I want to remind you where we started. We started in the book of Joshua. And this story about the children of Israel who came to this place where they were walking and they had crossed through the Jordan River and they were finally right on the edge of stepping into the promised land that God had always intended for them. And it seemed like we were getting ready to walk into their victory moment. But just before they did, God said something to them. He said, oh, I have one last thing for you before you go all the way into this promised land. Before you go all the way into this promised land, I need to talk to you about some things that you're carrying on your person that you can't take with you into the promised land. And if you remember, the thing that they were carrying, though it was hidden and though to everyone else it looked like they were exactly the people that they said that they were, the people of God, there was something in them that they were still carrying that marked them not as the people of God, but as the place that they have had come out of. I wonder what we have been carrying, carrying in our hidden places, carrying in our unseen places that on the outside looks like one thing, but on the inside is not what God has called us to be. And God cared about them so deeply that he said, I am more concerned with who you are when you arrive at your promised land than I am your possession. So he asked them to remain there and all of the men in the camp got circumcised. And after they were circumcised, he said, I need you to stay here until you are healed. And that's what we've been doing. We've been sitting in this place, remaining as God works in us, as God speaks to us, as God begins to turn and teach us the rhythm and the lifestyle of people who are healed people. Because what I want you to take away from this is that this is not a single event moment in your life. While I would love to tell you, you could go through a five-week seminar and be a healed person and then move forward from that. The truth is you're gonna walk out of that five-week seminar and walk right smack dab into another human being and chances are good that that person is gonna offend you in some way, that that person is gonna say something that you didn't wanna hear in some way. You are gonna have to go back into your workplace where you deal with other people all day long and there's going to be disappointment in that place for you there's going to be promotions that you didn't receive that you thought you should have received there's going to be deals that didn't go through that should have gone through and those things are going to impact you again so we have to learn how do we not let these things take root in our life but instead become people who live in the healing and abundance and wholeness that God has intended for us So we talked about holy rest. 
We talked about being people who set aside time in our day, in our week, in our life to intentionally disconnect from all of the busy, all of the noise, all of the chaos that happens and go and intentionally connect with God and let him speak into our life. Let him speak into us. Let him look into the hallow places of our soul and begin to shine his light in every aspect of our life. And we became, we learned how to be forgiving people. We learned that for the believer, Forgiveness is a requirement, not a request from God. And that we begin to forgive not when we feel like it, but when we make the decision to. And in the decision of forgiving, we begin the process of forgiving that helps us move away from the feeling of the pain that healed people have to be people who untangle themselves from the thing that the enemy wants to weigh you down and wants to tie you. And we begin to walk into the path and the place of forgiveness. And then we talked about freedom. Doesn't it feel good to live in freedom? That there are so many things that the enemy tries to entangle us with, so many things that the enemy wants to bind us up with and tie us down with, and your thing and my thing are not the same thing, which is why we have to be so careful to judge what someone else is tripping over because their experience has been different and their doors have been different. And for some reason, something that comes easily to me to move away from is difficult for you to move away from. And something that's difficult for me to move away from can be easy for you to move away from, but we bring all of our things before God and we bring them up to him and we begin to walk in this space of freedom, the freedom that God has for us and it's all so we can walk to this place of a sincere faith a sincere faith that lives before God that is before God as it looks like it is in front of God a sincere faith is what Paul wanted to talk to Timothy about when he wrote to Timothy he said Timothy I want to tell you to have a sincere faith my kids have these toys you probably have seen them before. There are all kinds of different ones like this, but they're these toys where you have holes and then you have different blocks and you have different shapes that fit into the different holes. They're a great toy for kids to play with. There are all kinds of things that they learn for them. I don't know if you have ever watched a young toddler um, try to play one, with one of these toys with one of these games as they try and find where does the shape go into the hole and they move it. It's one of the most frustrating experiences you will ever have in your life. Because the whole time you're like, it just goes, it goes in that one. It goes in, why can you not see that you have a circle on top of a triangle hole? It goes over three slots and you just watch them as they move it around and you're like, there's no way that block is gonna fit in that hole, but you have to leave them alone. You have to just watch them with all of your parental discipline, sitting on your hands and biting your tongue because it's important that they learn to struggle with the process of figuring out which one of these holes it fits in. And some of us adults are living in positions, stumbling through what it means to be an adult because there was always a parent in your life who came in and slotted the block in the hole for you. And so you never figured out how to struggle. You never figured out how to find the answer. The issue some of you are having with your staff is not their fault. It's your fault. 
Every time they come to a new challenge, every time they try to move into a, a new space, every time they're trying to figure out a new problem, you just swoop in with the answer. You just swoop in with the direction they need to move in. You just swoop in and solve the problem for them. And then you come back and you're frustrated about how come my team doesn't know what to do? You haven't let them struggle with the problem. And it feigns like help. And it feigns like love. But it's actually robbery. Because you are, when you are taking from them the struggle, you are also taking from them that sweet, sweet feeling of delight when you finally get the right block in the right hole. The confidence that it builds in your life, the security that it builds in your life, the feeling of efficacy, the way you can look back and say, I know that I put that block in the hole, so I might be able to figure out where this block goes too, and I need something to build on. And every time that you swoop in and you steal from them the struggle, you also steal from them the moment of pride, the moment of joy, the moment of relief that comes when you get the right block in the right hole. There's a feeling that comes when you get that last puzzle piece in the right place. When you know that it just fits in its place. See, the thing is, each one of these blocks is made to go in each one of these holes. There's a hole that corresponds with each one of the blocks and the outside of the hole and the outside of the block, they were cut perfectly to go together. They're the same height, they're the same width, they're the same curves in the right places. The outline of this and the outline of the block, they match. They match up perfectly together. The mathematical word for it is congruency. They are congruent with each other. The measurements of the outside, the way that the hole presents itself and the way that the block presents itself are the same. There is a feeling of <sighs> that comes when things in our life match, when they meet up together and they are the same, when they connect together. I don't know if you like to do puzzles. My husband, Phil, is a puzzle expert and he is leading our son Theo in his ways. And if you are a puzzle person, you know that the coveted position in the puzzle doing is the person who has what? The last piece. If you get to be the person who puts the last piece in the puzzle, you are the winner winner because there is this feeling what is it it's a feeling of buoyancy it's a feeling of lightness it's a feeling of relief when that puzzle piece matches that hole and when the whole thing comes together when there is matching when there is congruency there is an ease to the way things work when they fit together as they should what Paul is referring to here when he tells Timothy, I want you to have a sincere faith. I want your faith to match. I want your faith to match what you say your faith is. I want your faith to match what you believe your faith is, a sincerity of faith. Now, to really understand what Paul is getting into here, what, to, to really understand what he's saying 
to his young protege, Timothy, you have to dig into the etymology of this word and understand where Paul is t- pulling this term from. If you remember, if you can roll back and remember that uh, in ancient times, things like pottery and things like plates and cups and all of those things were made out of clay. They were built out of clay and they were put in kilns and they were sold and they were distributed out you know, in the town. And that was the common practice. That was the common material that people had their, their, uh, you know, their house goods out of. And there's this thing that started to happen is that when you're making a pot, when you're making a vessel, if it's not handled exactly right, when you put it in the kiln and it comes out, it cracks if it's not handled properly. And so what an honest potter would do, what a sincere potter would do is they would take that cracked vessel and they would discard of it because it's no longer good for the purpose that it was made for. It can't hold water any longer. It's been damaged along the way. And so they would get rid of that vessel and they would put it aside. But what a dishonest potter would do, what an insincere potter would do, would do is that they would take the vessel and then they would take a little bit of wax and they would mold the wax and they would fill in the space and they would fill in the gaps in the vessel and then they would paint the outside of this pot that they were making and they would put it out on the shelf and they would sell it as if it were fine which might seem like a little bit of a harmless crime, not really that big of a deal. I mean, after all, they filled in the space. However, the issue that would come to be when they filled in this space on this vessel is that in the middle of the Mideast heat, eventually that wax would begin to melt and eventually that pot would begin to leak because they had presented it as something that it was not, because they had presented it as a vase capable of carrying water when in fact it was not a vase capable of carrying water. And so then the the vase began to reveal itself that it was not in fact what it was presented to be. And so dealers who were honest in their dealings, dealers who presented only vessels that were as they presented, began to stamp the bottom of their work with these two words, sign sire, without wax. It was their declaration that this vessel is as it appears to be. It is exactly what you see. I have not painted it up to make it something that it's not. I have not filled in the spaces with a fake substandard substance to pretend that this vessel is something that it was never intended to be. This vessel is as pure as you believe it to be. It can do the thing that you believe that it can do. It can hold its form. It can hold its function. It is going to continue to work for you for days and times to come. And so from that, we developed the word sincere, which means what you see is what you get. What I am is who I am. I'm not presenting to you that I am something that I am not. I'm not trying to pretend that I'm one person only to find out that I'm another person. What you have in me is what I am all the way through. Our sincerity of our faith is one of the strongest aspects that we have in declaring who Jesus is. Our sincerity of faith is not the perfection of our faith. Our sincerity 
clarity of faith is the honesty of the faith that we possess. It's the clarity of the faith that we possess. It's the ability for the faith that we have to be as true on Tuesday as it is on Sunday. That when I come, who I say I am is exactly who I am. That who I'm presenting to be who I am is who I am. That the process that I'm working through is the same process that God has always had for me and has always intended for me to be because we walk ourselves out like these insincere potteries and we think that we're doing just little harmless fibs here or there about the way that we live our life or about the things that we engage in and we don't want to share with anyone any of the difficulty. We don't want to share with anyone any of the struggle that we've had along the way. We don't want to be honest about the journey that we've come out of or honest about the trouble that we're having in our relationships. We just want to present a glossy, painted, wax-filled finish on the other side of it that says, this is my complete vessel. But the trouble with a wax-filled vessel is that eventually it will show itself. Eventually, that wax starts to give. Eventually, the truth always begins to rise. God is not concerned with the perfection of your faith. He's concerned with the sincerity of your faith. Your spirit has been made completely righteous, completely saved. Your soul needs some help along the way and is being transformed. There is a mark, there is an aim, there is a thing that we are going after. But we don't have to pretend like we have arrived. Come on, if even Paul said, not that I have obtained all of this, but yet I move towards it. We just want to act like we've obtained all this. Like I got saved and here I am, wonderful and perfect. Here I am looking great because we're more concerned about the presentation of our faith than we are the sincerity of our faith. We're more concerned about if the Instagram of my faith looks good than we are about what the inside of our faith looks like. We're more concerned about what do my neighbors think about my faith than what does God think about my faith. What do I know in private? Because the other thing is the person who made that vessel knows exactly what that vessel is. You are not fooling anyone with your painted up vessel. So let's lay down some of the pretenses. Let's lay down some of the falsehood. Let's pull out some of the wax and say, this is the vessel that I'm working with. This is the vessel that I have. This is the areas where I've been damaged. These are the areas that I've been cracked in. This is the place of my struggle. This is the place of my weak spot where I wasn't handled exactly rightly. No one can come and use that vessel properly until they understand the weaknesses of the vessel that they have. But we're too busy pretending that our painted, wax-filled vessels are as good as a complete, whole vessel. There's this weird story, I think, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. There's this story in the book of Acts. It's a New Testament story, but it has this Old Testament overtone to it. Right? It's right in the beginning of Acts. It's in Acts 5. And it's this story about this couple. 
It's right here at the beginning. The apostles and the disciples are setting up the early church. They are figuring out what does it mean to be these followers of Jesus. And they are having this incredible experience now of, of not even, they don't even know yet what to call themselves. Are, are they Christians? Are they just a subset of Judaism? They call themselves the way because they're just these new Jesus followers trying to figure out how to set up this thing that he has left them to. And so we see them in the book of Acts and what, what it's such an exciting time because we see all of the new disciples, all of the new believers coming in. And as they experience Jesus, they have this internal transformation. They have this internal thing in their life that starts happening, that starts turning them over, that they have encountered God and all of the sudden it makes them have this new love for one another. All of the sudden it makes them have this fresh generosity where they wanna care for the poor that's part of the brother and the sisterhood. All of the sudden they wanna spend their time connected together, leaning on each other and holding one another up and they're discovering what does it look like for us to be in this new place? What does it mean for us to be brothers and sisters in Christ and all of a sudden it's breaking down the classes that they had it's breaking down the race barriers that they had it's breaking down the gender barriers that they had as Jesus is speaking to them through the Holy Spirit and saying hey this is what it means that you are now family in Christ they are having this incredible revival radical revelation of what it means to be the people of God as we walk through the beginning of Acts it's an incredibly exciting time because when you encounter Jesus it changes everything about your life transforms you it opens your heart and your mind in such a powerful incredible way if you're with us today and you feel like you've never encountered Jesus like that, I would love to invite you to let us know in the chat, to talk to somebody sitting close to you in the room and say, this thing that you're talking about sounds very different than what I have ever heard about Jesus. We would love to share more about you with the way that he has changed our lives. And so then there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira are their names. So there's this thing going on in the church, if you read in the end of Acts 4, that because they've broken down these class barriers, all of a sudden, they're very concerned with their brothers and sisters that don't have as much financial support as, as some of the others do. And so it says that they start giving out of their abundance. Some of them start selling things so that they can take care of other people. This incredible spirit of generosity begins to rise up in the early church. One of the markers of the church of God God has always been generosity. Generosity, just like you people here at Cornerstone Church who are incredibly generous and say, out of all that I have, I want to give and make sure other people are taken care of. They start giving to make sure other people are taken care of. So Ananias and Sapphira decide they want to get in on this too. Awesome. So they sell their property and then they bring it in. And this seems like it should be such a great moment but when Ananias comes in and goes to present his gift to Peter who was running the church there he says this is all of the money from the property we sold every last bit of it so Peter says it's all of it it's all the money because I don't know if you know but I've got a pretty direct line with the Holy Spirit so I just want to give you another chance 
on what you just presented to me? And Ananias is like, yes, this is all of the money. And then it says Ananias drops dead right there in the middle of the church. I mean, can you imagine what that does to the vibe in the room? Talk about an atmosphere killer. And then it says some young guys just come in and take him out. And three hours later, which is about how long we'll be here today, about three hours or so. <laughs> Jokes. About three hours later, his wife comes in there, apparently still having church, comes in. And so Peter gives her a chance. He says, hey, um, your husband was here earlier. We'll talk about what happened with that in a minute. But uh, when you guys sold that property, did you bring in all of it? And she says, oh yes, we brought in all of the money, all of the money, but they did not bring in all of the money. Scripture says that they held back a portion of it for themselves. They held back a portion of it for themselves. And so she too drops dead, like something out of Exodus right there in the middle of Acts. And they come in and they carry her out as well. Now, what's the issue with what Ananias and Sapphira have done? The issue with what they have done is not that they didn't give 100% of what they sold into the house. There's nothing that says, and God was requiring of the people to sell and give 100% of the proceeds into the house. The issue with what Ananias and Sapphira did is that they wanted to be seen as something that they were not. They wanted to come into the church and look like they had given something that they did not give. They wanted to come into the place and have everyone admire them and ooh at them and awe at them because they had given such a great abundance when in fact they had still probably done something really incredibly generous, but they wanted to be seen as different than they were. And for some reason, early on, right there in the beginning of Acts, God says, this is not something that I want to be part of my church. Not that you can't give generously, not that you can't keep some of it for yourself, but you cannot come into this place and present to be something that you are not. I want a sincere faith in my people. I want a sincere people of God. I want a people of God that come in and say, this is who we are. You can look at me all the way through and it's the same person. You can catch me on Friday night and I'm the same person that I am on Sunday morning. You can catch me on Wednesday at work and I'm the same person that I am on Sunday morning. When you look at my social feeds, they look just like I look when I'm volunteering. There's not a lot of confusion about who I am in my life. The trouble with presenting yourself as a wax-filled pot is that it causes confusion. Confusion comes straight from the hand of the enemy. It is straight from the pit of hell. And it's very confusing to me when I stop by your house on a Wednesday and I hear y'all cussing at each other and throwing things at each other. And then you come in here on Sunday morning talking about glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. That's confusing to me. And if I'm someone who's trying to find my way into the way, 
See, I've been walking for a long time and I know Jesus for myself, so when I see you being confusing, I know that that's a reflection on you, not a reflection on him. But let's say, for example, that everyone among us is not a mature believer who has been walking with Jesus for 30 years, but some people are curious, some people are seeking, some people have been wounded in their life at different seasons and at different times by people who have been confusing in their demonstration of their faith because their faith has not been sincere it has not moved all the way through them God needs us to have a sincere faith there's a few issues with the thing that Ananias and Sapphira do what it reveals in them what it shows us about where Ananias and Sapphira won one is that it shows us that they had a lack of trust in God They didn't trust that God was going to be able to be there for them if they went all the way in on this thing. It shows us that they didn't fully trust in his hand to provide for them that he knew in his providence down the line everything that they would possibly need. It also shows us that they had a lack of trust in the gathering, in the community, in the body of Christ, that that others would not be there for them in the way that they were there for others if they should ever have a time of need. They had not yet built a trust in the body and in the community. It also shows us that they have a lack of commitment to unity, that there is a unity that was happening in the church of like-mindedness, of like direction, and something about what Ananias and Sapphira did was a break in the unity of the direction that God was moving, and unity is so important to what God is doing. Unity is not the same as continually being comfortable. In fact, for us to live in the body of Christ type of unity, it often requires us to be un comfortable so that we can maintain some unity but more than all of that it reveals a lack of understanding ananias and sapphira died for a pretense of something that god never required of them we have too many believers walking around and pretending to be in places and positions and upholding things that are the external things, that are the picture things, that are the let me paint my life's picture for you by number things that God never asked of you. We are dying for things that are not the things that God required of us. They died to pretend that they had brought something in that God never asked them to bring into the place. Let me give you an example. God did not ask you to have a perfect, flawless marriage. He asked you to have a covenant commitment marriage. Right, But we are dying because we are on the pretense that what God asked of me is to have a perfect, flawless marriage. So everywhere I go, all I talk about is how great our date nights are and how lovely our situation is and how we never argue about anything. And isn't it my boo so cute? And isn't my baby so fine? And then you go home where there's no paint and where there's no wax filling in and y'all are screaming at each other and yelling at each other and breaking everything down. And now your relationship is rotting from the inside out 
because you are dying on a pretense that God never required of you. He said, let me have a sincere faith. A sincere faith comes in and says, I am committed to the thing that God has required of me. The thing that God has required of me is to be an honest person. The thing that God has required of me is to be a humble person. The thing that God has required of me is not to get straight A's in all of my classes. If I think that the thing that God has required of me is to get straight A's in all of my classes, then I think that it's okay that I cheat on all of my exams so that I can maintain the forward pretense of being a perfect believer who apparently is judged by their work ethic instead of knowing that what God requires of me is to commit to a process, is to commit to being changed, is to commit to being transformed, is to being changed from the inside out, that he's not concerned about how well I have been painted up. He's not concerned about how well I look to you. He's not concerned about how well you think of me. What he's concerned about is am I humble? Have I learned something on the way? Have I been changed? Have I been transformed? Do I look a little bit more like him today than I did yesterday? We need some sincere faith people who say I don't have to be painted up and I don't have to pretend who I am. I just want to come to you and I want to tell you that I'm struggling with this. I just want to come to you and I want to tell you that it hurts me on the inside. I want to come to you and I want to tell you that I'm not sure what to do with all of this, but I am committed to the things that God has required of me. What's a sincere faith? A sincere faith where there's no wax filling the spaces where there's no falseness in who we are, where there's no fakeness, where when the heat comes on you, you can remain. Where the heat comes on you, you can still hold what he's put on the inside of you. He has made you to carry so much. But you gotta be in a place. It's so different than what God says, what Jesus says to Nathaniel when he first encounters him. I won't go through the whole story, but if you look at the end of John 1, John 1 is a pretty lengthy chapter, and if you get towards the end of it, Jesus is starting to call his disciples, and Philip goes to get this guy, Nathaniel, and then Nathaniel comes, and actually what Nathaniel says to him is he says, come and see him, because Nathaniel's not sure that anything good can come out of Nazareth. I wanna encourage you again to just offer that invitation when people doubt, come and see him. Because when Nathanael comes to see him, Jesus says to him, immediately when he sees Nathanael, he says, there's a man in whom there is no guile. No guile, it means no duplicitness. It means Nathanael's not fronting as something that he's not. Nathanael's not one person when he's in public and another person in private. Nathanael doesn't speak to people who are in leadership one way and people who are volunteers another way. Nathaniel is even. Yeah, I know. Nathaniel is the same person. And he comes to see Jesus. And what I love even more about it, Nathaniel's re reply to him is, Nathaniel's a straight shooter. Jesus says to him, there's a man who's in no God. He's trying to give him a compliment. And Nathaniel says, you don't know me. Actually, what he says is, how do you know who I am? But if it was 2021, he says to him, you don't know me, we just met. How do you know what kind of person I am? And Jesus says to him, I saw you under the fig tree. 
when you were back over under that fig tree. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what was going on under the fig tree. What we know is that Nathaniel knew what was going on under the fig tree, and Jesus knew what was going on under the fig tree. And whatever Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, what it tells me is it was consistent with the person that he was presenting to be to others. Because the fig tree speaks in some ways of a secret place, of a place that no one else saw him. Jesus said, I know you because I know that who you are in secret is who you are in public as well. I know that who you are in private is who you are right here, right now. You have a sincere faith, Nathaniel. You have a faith that is consistent in your life. And it's such a difficult message to preach today because God wants us to live a sincere faith. I want you to experience a sincere faith. What I don't want you to hear is that it means that you can't have struggles in your life. We all have areas that we're trying to grow. It's quite the opposite. It's that we need a faith that says, I have some questions about some things and I need to bring that up. I'm having some troubles in some areas and I need to bring that into the body. I'm not quite sure, I feel tired, I feel worn down, and I can't keep pretending that I have energy and that I'm you know, risen up on eagle's wings today because today I feel tired. A sincere faith is not a pretending faith. A sincere faith is honest. I'm gonna talk just quickly, there are a few things. A sincere faith tells the truth. It tells the truth. It walks into a place and it speaks truth plainly not your truth not whatever your latest thing is it speaks his truth it speaks the truth and honesty in integrous relationships sincere faith is trustworthy that i can trust what you're doing i can trust who you say you are there is a trustworthiness to sincere faith and sincere faith is consistent in belief speech and action what I believe is what I say, and what I say is what I do. These things are connected in sincere faith. It is the aim of our practice of our faith that the, the space between what I believe and what I say and what I do would become smaller and smaller so that there is congruency in them, so that they are the same. God wants to walk you into a place of sincere faith, a life without wax filling in the gaps, without paint covering up all the difficult and the broken parts. There's, there's one more thing though in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18 has this incredible scripture because what do I do with that? What do I do about the fact that I have been marred by life, that I have been damaged by life, that I have been hit, that I have been impacted? And Jeremiah 18 reminds us of this. In verse one through four, it says, and then the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. 
and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Now, before we move on, in case you don't know church imagery, in case you don't know biblical symbolism, the potter speaks to us of God. The clay speaks to us as us. We are the vessels formed in his hands. We are the vessels that he took and made in his likeness. What this scripture in Jeremiah is telling us is that as long as I can find a way to remain in the potter's hands, he is gonna change me. He is gonna form me. He is gonna make me just like he designed me to be. I know that you have some cracks. I know that you have some broken places. I know that there are some areas in your life where the anointing keeps leaking out of your life instead of being poured out of your life. If you will stop trying to fill it in with wax from your own hands and paint it up in a false pretense, just get yourself back into the potter's hands. Just get yourself back into the place that he has for you. Just get yourself back into right relationship. Get yourself back into the body. Get yourself back into the gathering. Get yourself back into quiet time alone with him. Find yourself back on the wheel because he can do what no other potter can do. He can do what you could never do. He can take that clay and he's going to rework it. He's going to reshape it. He's going to reform it just as he has desired for you to be. And guess what? On the other side, he's going to make you into something even better. Says it reworks you for the thing that he has designed for you to be. For the thing that he has desired for you to be. You don't have to worry about working yourself. You don't have to worry about filling yourself. Get yourself back into the hands of the potter and let your life be transformed. Tell somebody, healed people, heal people. And we are gonna live our life as healed people. Amen, church? Walking in his likeness, walking with sincere faith. Tell somebody on the other side of you, you won't find any wax in this vessel. God, I thank you for the word that you have spoken. I thank you for the way that you've moved us. I thank you for the way that you are forming us. God, the way that you spin us on, on your wheel, the way that you change us and move us in your hands, Father God. God, I thank you not just for today, but for what you've spoken to us over the last couple months. Thank you for every heart, for every family, for every life that is being changed and transformed. God, help us carry this with us and help us live before you healed, whole, in abundance, congruent and sincere with the faith that we claim. In Jesus' name, amen.